Hello and welcome to the STEM Equity Network podcast series. This is the podcast series where we interview a range of different STEM leaders and mid-career researchers, asking them about their personal experiences and to see if we can find any gold nuggets about how we can stop the loss of mid-career STEM professionals. Today, we are very privileged to be interviewing Dr. Anna Brooks from Auckland University. Anna holds a BCA in management and a PhD in immunology and is a senior research fellow with the Morris Wilkins Centre at the University of Auckland in New Zealand. She is a keen flossotometrist and runs the flossotometry facility at the University Science Faculty. Anna is also currently facilitating a collaboration with Auckland Genomics to establish a pipeline for single cell transcriptomics, the very first of its kind in New Zealand. She is an active member of the international flocytometry community and regularly attends and presents at both cytometry and research interest conferences. She's passionate about teaching and has presented and facilitated a number of workshops, including the international cyto conferences. She is also sitting on a couple of conference organizing committees and national grant reviewing committees, as well as the ACS. Anna is also a member of the Australasian Society for Immunology, the Australasian Society for Stem Cell Research, and the International Society for Advancement of Cytometry, as well as the International Society for Stem Cell Research. Anna, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you on board. Thank you, Catherine. Really like to find out where you came from in the first place and how you got into science. Well, yeah, that is an interesting question because I never really set out to become a scientist. I really had no idea what I wanted to do. So at school, I was doing a combination of both businessy type stuff, economics, accounting, and the sciences, and I sort of enjoyed both. So sort of heading into university, I thought, oh, I still don't know. So I did both. And I realized very early on, actually, during my first years at university, that I really thrived off that desire to understand new things. So I'd pop off to my uh, commerce lectures and sort of found that very much sort of uh, along the lines of being informed of things that I knew, but under descriptive titles, if you like. So although I enjoyed both, I really thrived off that desire to learn new knowledge. So yeah, I got to the end of a double degree in science and commerce and thought, what next? So I stayed on to do honours. After that, again, I was like, hmm, where shall I go next? But I guess one sort of point also that was very particular to me in my studies was that I, I was going through a lot of personal development as well. And I really, really struggled with any aspects of having to present. So the idea of getting up and presenting work was such a massive struggle. And this was one of those things that was a little bit hidden within me and not many people really knew about. And it was because as a child, I actually had a syndrome that prevented me or it's, it's a tough one to describe. It's essentially called selective mutism. Very few people have heard about it. And even myself, I, well, it was actually not a diagnosed syndrome at the time. I only found out in my, I think it was early 20s, that it existed. So it was kind of a reflective thing and thinking, oh my goodness, this is what I went through. So in a nutshell, what that means is that you struggle to speak um, in a sort of frozen with fear capacity at a very young age. And it comes as a shock to your family because you can be quite chatty at home and removed from a sort of a, a safety environment, if you like, you freeze and clam up. 
So this was very unusual. My early years at school were a big struggle because no one really knew what was going on. People sort of thought something was wrong with me and all the rest of it. But, you know, by the end of primary school, I had pushed through enough that I appeared somewhat normal, if you want to call it that. So all that sort of happened from about the end of primary school right to the end of high school is that I struggled with communication in a verbal manner. You know, I'd get low grades in particular areas. And I guess along with that came with this personal side of academic achievement where I just had to accept that I would never get good marks or be well-rounded in everything because I really, really suffered in that capacity. That carried on through university. Some of my papers, especially in commerce, I got some terribly low grades because, you know, if you can't sit there in an interactive environment and contribute to a conversation, you're considered like you're not interested. Mm. And I kind of dealt with it by ignoring it. It was quite interesting. Like I just, I didn't, well, I didn't really know I had an issue. You know, everyone gets anxiety, right? Everyone struggles with these things. And I didn't realize how deep-seated this was. So uh, I pushed through my degrees and then came honors. And I'm like, what am I doing? I'm, I'm suddenly launching into this career where you do research and you present on it. And I had a really, really, it could have pushed me out of science moment in my honors year. In my honours year, each paper was slightly different. In one particular paper, we had to present a little small section each week for each class. And that was fine-ish. Well, fine-ish. I was never great at that. Again, you know, I would struggle. So by the end, the very last class, we were expected to be perfect because, you know, you've just trained to be a scientist and present work you're reading about. In this particular class, uh, we were given a topic. And one of those topics was confused between me and another student. And the day before we had to come to class, I realized this. And so I said, oh, look, don't worry. I'll just do an overarching introduction to the course. And it was an overnight thing. Like I had to really pull something together at short notice. So when we entered the class and I started to present, not very well, you know, back in the ancient days of overhead transparencies. And, and I was told to stop reading from my notes in front of everyone. Then I was told the lecturer was getting annoyed that you want this well-polished presenter. He then told me to turn off the overhead projector so that I could just carry on without it. I didn't and I pushed through and everyone looked in a lot of fear, including myself. So I just pushed through that despite, you know, tried to be torn down, if you like. So I was the first presenter, everyone else, did the same thing. Everyone else was equally unprepared and I was the only one who was told to remove their notes, turn off the projector and to present how you should as a learning to be a scientist. And it was so, so destructive for someone like me who had actually come from a place of, you know, I had a public speaking issue and that could have been the end of my potential in science. Mm. And it was so tough, but I didn't let that get to me. Well, I did. It was tough, but I had to push through that. And it was very interesting, even the follow-up from that. So I, I had moments where some other senior people spoke to me about the situation and they sort of said, you will be prepared, you know, next time, won't you? And it was kind of like, I didn't even want to make the excuse of what the excuse was. It was just, it was such a damaging moment for me. But, you know, I came back from that learned from that and pushed on. So that was the end of my honours year. And again, I really loved the science factor. So I carried on and then I moved cities and moved up to Auckland to start my PhD. 
again, I was still that reserved. I had such a tough time presenting my views, even in small groups, even in small groups. We had, were a very small lab and it was really, really tough for me. Which as a scientist, you really need to be able to present your topic. You need to be able to explain your science to other people. So this would be quite detrimental to your career. Absolutely. Yeah, it was so tough. And you know you're being judged. You know you're the quiet one. or you know, And sometimes you can be even perceived to be snobby or arrogant or, you know, like that whole sort of thing when you actually have a bit of fear and sort of severe anxiety can be so misinterpreted. But yeah, so, so early on in my PhD, I was still in that place. And then I sort of took it upon myself to really understand what was going on. And it was about then I actually understood about what the syndrome really meant. And then it was just this journey of self-discovery and, and just sort of learning how to push through all of that. You know, a lot of it I did naturally. Did anyone help you with this at all? Did you find anyone who could guide you in this? Or did you kind of just decide to have a look into it yourself and figure out what yes. the hell was wrong? Yes, I literally did it myself. I did a lot of self-help online, realizing that it was a very rare syndrome. I didn't know anyone in New Zealand that had ever encountered this. So, and that was very early on. That was about 2008. And so that's when I really dug deep into the syndrome, if you like. So I also consider myself one of the lucky ones because at that time, I then realized when I looked internationally at how many people never get over this, like never actually ever get to the point like now where people will laugh if I tell them that I had this. They're like, oh my goodness, we can't even get you to shut up. And <laughs> As a side note, can I just say when I first met Anna and she introduced this point, I was exactly the same. I was just like, are you serious? You can, you're one of yeah. the most catty people I know. So exactly. Anna, mm-hmm. you've obviously gone through a whole range of different changes in your life in order to deal with this syndrome. Yeah, so, and when I reflect back and see the largest personal growth, it would have been during my PhD. And that was the most rewarding part of doing a PhD was that, you know, it's that self-motivation, all those things and all the, you know, the resilience it teaches you. It was one of the most personal growth moments of my life. I think early in my PhD, you know, I would spend a good month fretting over a presentation I'd have to give. And for me, the success was just giving it. I also had to accept that I, was, I would never be up for the award of best presenter. For me and me personally, I just had to accept that just presenting was my reward. And that was a, that was a tough pill to swallow because we as scientists know that, you know, especially in academia, you are judged by what's on paper. You are taught that you must win these awards. You're always against your peers developing your CV. And, you know, I think that was really tough. And so, again, it was just one of those things that I had to put on a shelf and say, it's okay that you're not going to win those things. You know, you've overcome this syndrome and personal development to a point where you can just be your own best kind of thing. So it's been a very long road and I continue to grow in that regard. So if you'd asked me in, you know, my first year of a PhD, where do you see your science career going? And I probably was asked that and I probably sort of thought, oh, I haven't thought about it. I didn't think about finishing the PhD and going into a job. I just let life unfold for me. And, you know, sometimes I look back and think, well, maybe that was an issue. Maybe, well, now I would certainly say to an early PhD student, have these things in your mind where you want to go. It's great to reach out from all different capacities, all those bits and pieces. And so, yeah, it was a tough time to sort of just roll through with your career. 
Of course. Then moving on with your career, then once you finished your PhD, you went in and basically stayed in the same place, which is unusual. Most people, when they finish their PhD, go and do a postdoc, particularly overseas for Australian and New Zealanders. Um, you know, can you explain that choice? Absolutely. So again, much of that came down to my personal growth phase. I got to the end of my PhD and was in this sort of position where you knew that you had this strong sort of encouragement to go overseas. And in fact, in New Zealand, I think it was very strong. Like as in, you're not going to be ever a top scientist if you don't leave the country. And you know, that, and that's still a culture that exists. But again, I just had to accept my norm and that I had grown so much to be comfortable enough in a scientific environment to hold my own and be confident enough that it was extreme fear to sort of think that I would have to start over again. With hindsight, I don't know whether I was being, that that really was the case, but that was my memory of the time that I really feared having to do it all again because it was such a massive thing for me to even present. And so to actually move countries was massive. Mm. But on top it sort of it was just a natural progression within my lab that at the end of my PhD I started showing this affiliation for flow cytometry and sort of just wrapping up some of the work I was doing. So I sort of naturally merged into this role of doing research and overseeing flow cytometry. And this was never a career path or deliberate. It happened and that's what starts the point of which I call my career unconventional. I think one of the most difficult things for me early in my career, which, you know, some would say I'm old in my career, if you like. So, but in that early career stage as an academic, I'm now getting severely judged by my past because it's unconventional. And by unconventional, I mean that I've stayed in academia. I strive to lead my own research in that capacity. But at the same time, I've been leading and developing, you know, world-leading flow cytometry out of our lab and out of our faculty. We have two faculties that have flow cytometry at the university. And I've been leading one of those for now over at least 10 years. And there've been various points in my career where that's been at the forefront, like just so much involvement and so much development. And so that again, if we sort of go back to that point of the fact that I chose to stay in New Zealand and stay in my lab, where I've benefited in a different capacity is that through my involvement with flow cytometry, I've had massive international outreach in that capacity. A lot of my collaborative efforts on the international stage has been through the cytometry arena because it's such a collaborative technique that, you know, you find yourself doing all different aspects of science, which I always knew that I needed to keep in, in the research part. Yeah. And so do you feel then that this different research path that you're taking, obviously just different to other researchers, has anyone else now assisted you and helped you during this research path? Have you had good mentors or sponsors or people who actually help assist you move forward in this capacity? Well, I think one of the difficult factors in being in, in an academic institute is that it isn't the norm. So I'm in a situation right now, you know, where I'm coming to the end of a fixed term contract in the era of COVID-19, which doesn't help at all, given the economic climate. But I'm, I'm essentially in that really tough position right now where I'm trying to pave the way for this sort of unconventional role of being both an academic leader in a technology plus also doing research plus also being a lecturer. So it's like a combinatorial uh, career if you like and mentoring in that capacity has not really existed or at least I'm not really sure where to find it. At international conferences in the cytometry arena 
I'm always um, gauging interest in other academics like myself who land in these similar roles internationally and how they all have got where they're going as well. Because it's so different internationally, right? Every different facility, whether it's academic or industry, is governed differently. And so it's been a tough path. And there were times I sort of thought, okay, you know, I'll go directly into cytometry. But I knew that that was never going to be enough for me. I love the cytometry. I have to need to sink my teeth into research or a research question. That's what really drives me. So I love the actual collaborative approach of cytometry. So although I trained in immunology, I've also through collaboration within my lab dabbled in the stromal and stem cell field because it was one of those areas that didn't have a strong cytometry presence. So I've found myself thriving in that arena as well. And so that's sort of been the key thing about cytometry and why I've really loved this role is to be able to influence so many different areas. It's just been so difficult to actually put a flag in and call it a career when you're being judged to either be 100% research or a lecturer in an academic institution. Mm, so because you straddle both areas, it's really difficult for you to find other people who are doing exactly the same thing and therefore mentors. But it sounds to me like you've got this yeah. band of trusted advisors or a motley crew, if you want to call it, of trusted advisors, all of whom are in the same position as you around the world, these international philosophists, many of whom straddle both academic and research as well. Is that right? Yeah, I wouldn't say there's a lot of them. Actually, I struggle to think of any that specifically spring to mind. There's many that have come from academia and taken on a complete core directorship role, but there's less that I can think of off the top of my head that are doing both and where it was a clear path. It might be more so in Australia, but from memory, you know, I've talked to many in the field and it's definitely not, a, not been an easy one. Sometimes you have to hang up your academic hat, although you still behave like one. Sometimes it's just that, no, that path doesn't exist. So therefore, go over there, segregate off. So yeah, mentorship in this arena has been really tough. Um, and I'm literally in the thick of it right now. So even within Auckland University, you're one of the things we are doing to help pave the way, or for me to help pave my way, if you like, is talking to similar, there is another technology arm in this position where they have academics and technical staff, you know, forming a core entity. And so that's where I'm sort of looking to at the moment to um, help bounce ideas off them. So I guess one of the key things or the key struggles of my career personally in being at this early stage is the fact that, you know, I went an unconventional route. I'm a collaborative person and I've tapped into lots of research projects rather than looking like I'm, you know, a senior leader, particular area. And so when you're being unconventional like that, it's tough because you have to take what comes with that. Yeah. And so the, the road ahead is sort of trying to decide or, or hoping that something will, will shape from this or whether, you know, the road gets too tough and one has to consider something else. But I'm hoping it won't come to that. And that's really where my struggles have come from is the sort of two different paths merging and there not being a, a real... A clear path by the sound of it. Yeah. Totally, totally, yeah. So can I ask then, in terms of collaboration, it sounds to me like, again, you've got a really nice group of international people who can collaborate and work together and friends and colleagues that you can work with. Have you ever found that you have been biased against within either your position or within your wider group that you are part of? Just because, I mean, I'm going to address it because you're a female or because you're from New Zealand or, you know... <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, yes, us New Zealanders always get judged, especially by Australians. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yeah, there, you know, there's there's no career that comes without you know its hurdles in, in those areas. I I think one thing I will say is that for a long time, I don't know if it was naivety, but for a long time I felt like that there was always a decent representation for women in science and and in the area. And and I think when I say naivety, I think sometimes I can say that or one says that because they might not experience it. But I can now actually, I've come full circle on that one. Yeah, there are issues and it comes from a multitude of things, whether you're male or female, even your age and things like that, or seniority or lack of seniority. So there's so many different aspects. So let me think of an example. So I have, I have been in a situation where I've done a presentation or a shared presentation with a male counterpart and really big audience, uh, really sort of successful outcome of the workshop. And at the resolution of this said workshop and, you know, where the audience breaks up and then people come up to talk to you, I was overlooked. And I don't know whether that's because of my height and like, you know, I'm just down below somewhere. <laughs> but no, on a serious note, I felt in a few situations overlooked and the male lead of the workshop was directly spoken to and I was invisible. Wow. Really? Yeah. That was my aha moment that this still existed. Like I did feel a bit naive to sort of think, oh, come on, and you know, haven't we passed the sexism? But that absolutely Brilliant. happened. And my jaw was dropping. I was like, I'm so invisible. Yeah, did it happen for was just one person or was it a number of people in particular? The situation I'm remembering was a particular person, but then on and off, you know, I can sort of think of other situations where that was a little bit the same but I think you always want to think the best in people and you you don't ever think that you're getting that treatment mm. so like a hindsight thing when you're like hey yeah that happened and so yeah that did surprise me it did surprise me and I don't know whether it's a generational thing this particular person was a lot older and I don't know again that could be an age thing or it could have been a sexist thing or it could have just been well, I don't know. It was weird and it felt really odd, especially when you put so much work into something, you mm. know, like so much work and you're not being engaged in the conversation. Yeah, and being dismissed as less than equal. Yeah, mm. yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. Um, focusing now back on your career the way it is. I mean, you're in mid-career. Uh, a lot of the research shows us that a lot of mid-career Females drop out at this point, many because they have children. As I understand it, you've chosen not to. Do you think that you're almost biased against because you haven't had children or is there an issue there at all? Yeah, that's an interesting one. Um, I, I think the only thing I can think of, and I don't necessarily think it will be to do with gender, but I can think of times early on, a few years back in my career, where you know, you might be in a, an environment where people, anyone, could be required to work late hours and it would always be, you know, more likely an assumption because people knew that you didn't have a family to go home to or children to attend to. It's something that you probably actually just unfairly put on yourself, like as in, oh, I guess I'll have to do this. I'm just trying to sort of think of other sort of scenarios of what would cause one to drop out at this stage if it's not to do with family. I think it can just be general pressure. I don't know whether that's male, female thing, but an academic pathway can be very tough. It's and tough. Mm. 
I mean, all I'm saying is family is often a reason why women just give up. But what you're suggesting yes. is it's a tough career anyway. Yeah. And mid-career, yeah. you still have to push. You still have to go to the next stage. And you're facing at the moment, irrespective of whether you've got children or not, you're still sitting there going, well, I wonder if I should even stay in academia. I don't know where my next yeah. path is. And maybe a lot of that is to do with the fact that, well, there's certainly a large amount of job insecurity you know, you've only got yes. these short-term contracts. You never mm -hmm. know what's happening after these. Mm -hmm. I mean, you've got to start aiming towards your next contract as soon as you've landed your, your current one. So, yeah, maybe it's Absolutely. the insecure nature Absolutely. of the business. Yeah, I think so. And if anything, you know, I could feel more pressure, if you like. Or you put the pressure on yourself because... Like I've seen so many successful women in science who are juggling everything. And sometimes it's actually you self-reflect and think, wow, you know, these women are really succeeding and having to juggle so much. And so that you almost put more pressure on yourself that you're not having that extra struggle that you're having to juggle children as well. So it's almost like added pressure. Like, you know, what's my excuse? <laughs> There's still plenty of excuse. You know, children are one aspect, but you know, life is going on around you so there's so many different elements of pressure that can cause you to sort of go ah oh, you know can i really just keep going from contract to contract owning a home and mortgage and all that sort of stuff is, is so stressful mm. and expensive um, so you know like there, there's all that sort of stuff and you sort of wonder how long you can cope as your you know age creeps up as to <laughs> the job security factor it's just so tough. And, that, and, you know, that's not gender specific in any way. You know, that, that's the struggles we face in science or in academia. Absolutely. I just feel that it's quite shocking the amount of people who drop out yeah. are mostly females at this stage because of the pressures. Just to add on, on that note, like there's the element, I guess, a personal element, like the, your personality and resilience and whether that's just, you know, are we more likely to give up? I don't know. Are we, you know, as, as females, are we not, give up's not the right word, but, you know, are we more likely to not be able to cope with that pressure? I don't know. I don't know if that's an element of why there's more females that drop out. Because in some ways it's an unnatural environment. It's this game of continually striving to the, be the best and compete with everyone. And maybe it's a personality thing. You really have to have that enthusiasm, well, not just enthusiasm, but the energy to keep striving and, and fighting against your colleagues. Like it really is a survival of the fittest, right? Mm. So it's a resilience game. Yeah. Well, in that case, then as a mid-career researcher, what if, are a few of those things that would really help you to stay in the game and to accelerate your career? Um, I think the more that successful style mentorship exists, would be helpful and I say successful just calling something a mentoring program doesn't make it successful every sort of society or group likes to say hey we mentor people but does it really work so I think you know actually finding or, or tapping into resources where people know a particular program works and helps and I don't necessarily think you know as a female scientist it doesn't necessarily need to be a, a female mentor and in some respects having you know a mentor or a different style at different times of your career could be important or different aspects of your career like if you do feel you're struggling with you know you feel like your manager or your boss is suppressing you in some way and you just need anyone to talk to about that that's one element 
versus whether you feel you're being unfairly judged or, you know, treated because you're a female. You know, like I think, I think there are so many different elements um, of what type of mentorship you require. Having some way or some sort of, you know, access to the right people at the right time. I think in some ways I've talked to colleagues and they'll naturally become someone who then you think, hey, that was kind of good mentorship or good, you know, it's advice, right? And it might not be a formalized program. And that's, that's quite often what happens, right? But I think one of the things that if I were to sort of sum up as being one of the toughest things as being a scientist seeking mentorship is that, you know, you, sometimes your friends are the great people to talk to, right? And your friends that aren't in science, they just can't give you the advice you need. So I think that's been one of the toughest things is that, you know, when you try and reach out to someone who's close to you and you get, you know, who gets you, you can't really explain your contract's coming to an end and you'll be sort of told, oh, there'll be something else. It's fine. And you're like, come on, you know how long I've built my career? So, you, and that's where you're sort of naturally seeking advice, right? So whether it's from your friends or colleagues, and you're naturally going to talk more to a colleague because they get your struggles. That's sort of how I've dealt with my issues, you know, or struggles along the way. And I've certainly got good advice, but I think I should have started earlier is what I would tell my younger self. But as I, as I sort of explained, you know, like for me, my biggest very early career issues were just me, you know, just the self-development and getting to a point where I'm excited, still nervous, but excited to get up and give a presentation. And early on, when I, you know, got over those hurdles, the first reward was when people would come up to me and say, I gave a great presentation. And I'm like, whoa, hang on, I just gave one. Giving one was all I wanted. Mm. So it was the point where, where I was rewarded with people telling me it was a good one, you know. It's great. I mean, it sounds to me like the hurdles you've gotten through have been massive um, mm. in terms of being able to get you to this point and maybe you had to get through them yourself at that point. Yeah. Now it's time really as a mid-career researcher that you could do with that extra helping hand to get to the next level. Absolutely. And quite frankly, the hurdles that you've had to face are not unusual in scientists at all. Yeah. I mean, I've met quite a few of them and quite a lot of them do not like public speaking at all. Mm -hmm. Really afraid of presenting and stuff. The reason they're in science is not necessarily to be a marketer. And so, yeah, I totally understand that these are issues that many other people face. So thank you for being honest about that. I appreciate it. No worries. Yours wasn't necessarily like a, a gender issue, although we did touch on a few things, but it's certainly a scientific issue about presenting yeah. stuff. One thing we didn't go into was funding. That's a tough one in my arena anyway, because of my weird path. Because I've been a cytometrist, I haven't had the time to properly shape my career for all sorts of other reasons. Mm. So, and, you know, and changes on the cards. Mm. Yeah. Thank you for your time, Anna, and for your insight. And good luck with your career. And I will speak to you guys again next week at the STEM Equity Network. Thank you. Great. Thank you.